Right. Good morning. Good morning. So good to see you today at Foundation Church with us. Now, I got to preface this sermon. How many has been watching the news this past week slash two weeks with one particular story? If you're honest, there's been one thing that's followed your feed and you've got way, way, way too invested and that's into a submarine, right? The great submarine and the tragedy that that is. Now, I preface this by saying is that we are talking about the Titanic today, not because of the submarine. It just so happened that both of these things collided. But I want you to go back. Raise the hand. Who has watched the movie The Titanic? Oh, yeah. It's a classic, right? It's a classic. It is a classic love story. Love story of a woman named Rose and a, and a boy named Jack. And there's something about this story that we just absolutely love. There's something that we absolutely love. And there is actually that Rose is the character. You may not know this, but maybe we're going to proclaim this. This is the character that you root for, that you root for from the very beginning. Because her story goes is that her father had just died. She is now going to be marrying this man who has a ton of money and a ton of wealth that will bring wealth not only to Rose, but also to her mother and to her rest of the family. This is like the marriage of the ages. The only problem is, is that we really kind of don't like the mom because she's making Rose marry this man. And we really can't even root for the man because, to be honest, he's just kind of a jerk, right? Or at least that's how he's portrayed throughout the whole movie. And then on the scene, here comes this just like Prince Charming-like figure, Jack. Leonardo DiCaprio in his prime. It's just like, come on, not much better. And they bring him on the scene, and he is from poverty, and he is from, like, not even supposed to be on the ship. And we see that the story just continues to unravel and unravel where they end up just falling in love in less than 36 hours or 24 hours. However much of it. That normally does not happen. But we are just entrapped by this love story that happens all the way to the point to where when Rose has the choice to get on a lifeboat, with her supposed-to-be husband, she actually instead chooses Jack. And we all know how it tragically ends with plenty of room on a door, but only one person on it, right? That's the way we always proclaim it. There had to be room, Rose, for Jack on this door. But here's what I want to get to. Why is it that within our culture, we root for Rose? Why is it that we root for her? Because if we're really looking at the bigger picture, by her being married to that particular man would bring her wealth, would bring prosperity to her family, would bring a good name even to her family, to where it would impact not just her, but everyone that would be in her circle. Why do we not root for that type of prosperity? Why instead do we root for for Rose's heart to go on, for her heart to just become like the greatest pursuit of her life, to chase after Rose with all of her might and all of her being. Well, there's a very simple answer, is that at the heart of who we are, we are individuals. And what we love in our culture in particular is for the individual desires, wants, hopes to be at the forefront 
of how we live our lives. And so today, what we're going to talk about is this word called individualism. Individualism is at the heart of every love story that we've seen, that we love, and that we follow. But we're going to look at how individualism plays into our life and then even plays into Scripture. Let's start first with a definition. What is individualism? So individualism, it is a belief. It is a belief that our own dreams, goals, personal achievements, personal fulfillment ought to take precedent over the well-being of any group. There's another way that individualism is described is expressive individualism. And expressive individualism goes a little bit deeper. It's the tendency to find our meaning by giving expression to our own feelings and our own desires. Now, at the base level of individualism, I would say if we went across this room, we each have a different favorite food. We all listen to maybe different music. And we all maybe even have different hobbies of how we express ourselves as individuals. That may be the simplest form of it. But we go a little bit further to where like you have like that child or maybe you were that child that was like when your mom tells you to do something, you do the complete opposite. You know what I mean? That little sense of rebellion in you. That's a little bit of individualism coming out in you. And then maybe a little bit further, you are very self-reliant. You, you go through life dependent upon no one and you have pride in that. Or we can go just a little bit further. And if you look across our entire culture of what maybe one of the biggest conversations are right now or that's happening is this, this continual emergence of what they're calling the sexual revolution that is taking place. And to use the words from one of the greatest movies, The Iron Giant, here is how you could define the individualism in the most deepest and darkest forms that you are who you choose to be. That you are who you choose to be. This is at the heart of our culture. This is at the heart of who we are. Now we can take this further because the individual is saying that it's greater than the community. This is an individualist approach versus a collectivist approach. You ever followed like that sports team? I used to coach and there was like, if you had like one player that maybe was really, really good, that was okay. But if you had that one player that like put his needs and wants over everybody else on the team, nobody liked that guy. Worst player in the world to coach. Nobody in here roots for that guy. We can see this whenever you maybe work for a company. Does a company, do most companies now have your own best interest in mind? Oftentimes, what companies have is their own interests in mind, their own bottom line. And oftentimes, you see this impacted into our employees. In marriages, we see this now continuing to go happen. You see, even through rates of divorce, that oftentimes what you get to see is there's a battle oftentimes between personal, personal desires and personal wants, and so much so that the collective group is the one that normally gets pushed to the side. Or we even see this in churches to where the heartbeat of the church is your personal relationship with Jesus and however you can figure out the best place for your personal relationship to grow, that's where you should go. You see, through our culture, it is the individual that we love. And it is the individual that our culture is telling you is most important. Now, let's just dive in a little bit. What is at the root of this individualism? There is really at the core a desire for happiness, 
and psychological well-being. This is at the root. And we have to do, how do you end up finding this? Well, you see, you have to look within yourself. This is what culture says. Your inner image, your inner being, external accomplishments from those things. But where does individualism lead us? Here is what we see the cons and where we see the trouble. You see, meaning and purpose is now being defined and created by the individual. Meaning and purpose is defined and created by the individual. That's the first one. The second one is a lack of empathy. Whenever we are completely self-absorbed in ourselves, we yet to miss, we yet to see the needs of individuals around us. So there's a lack of empathy. There's a lack of sympathy within us. We continue to go. There's a reduced sense of support to where if in this culture we feel isolated. We feel like we have nobody that we have a relational connection with. And here is the last part. Where does individualism lead us? We make the world what we want. And this is built on the rebelliousness of our own fallen nature. Now, how does individualism tell us to live our lives? And this one, I hope, makes a connection with you. Individualism tells you that your personal freedom and self-interest are paramount. It tells you that your worth and purpose is in temporary things and that living out the individual self is the most important thing that you could do. That we make the inner trip and oftentimes we never come back out. And as I was doing my study, I found this prayer and it's so incredible how it connects maybe even to you, but definitely to our culture. I got it up here on the screen. This is called the prayer of the inner self. The prayer of the inner self. It says, my essence within, help me to find my authentic self. My kingdom come. My will be done from birth to seventh heaven. Give me today my daily spread. Forgive not my enemies. I suppress, as I suppress those who sin against me, Lead me not into self-doubt, but deliver me from all my authorities. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are mine now and forever. Amen. How crazy is that? And we see this is obviously in connection to one of the greatest prayers that we have probably able to know and recite, and that is the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is a complete shift from the individual to his kingdom. But we know and we can feel the tension here is that what culture is telling us is that your individual self is the most important thing about you. And whether or not you maybe agree with it, I say deep down, you will find yourself praying this prayer more than the Lord's. And so we lead to this question today that we are coming to, that, that this is our culture we assume oftentimes that our culture is normal and that this is the best way to live our lives, but we rarely find that this is the case. When we look at the gospel, when we look at the way of Jesus, here is what we find, is that the way of Jesus in our experience showed that while looking out for our own interests and living in extreme independence, while it may be easier in the short term, it leads to an unhappy and unfulfilled life. 
And most importantly, for better or worse, we need each other. And so the question we are wrestling with today, we're going to have it on the screen, is how do we shift our focus from the individual? How do we shift our focus from the individual? And there are three points that we are going to make today. Number one is to shift your focus to things above. Number two, to shift your focus to community. And then number three, to shift your focus to your new identity. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 to help us build our case. Colossians chapter 3, listen, it has the potential to shift, to shift our focus from an individual mindset to one that is communal and that helps us live out the holistic Christian life. We're going to read this in its fullness, verses 1 through 17, and then we're going to come back and just dissect it for just a few moments. It begins with verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, Put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So let's unpack this piece of scripture just a little bit. How does this help us? How does this help us shift our focus from the individual? Well, the first one is that it it extorts us. It commands us, number one, to shift our focus to things above. To shift our focus to things above. Now, let's play this out. Why, number one, is this so hard? Before we even talk about what are the things above, let's just walk through the life of a parent. 
If you are in the life of a parent, then it's a great example. You wake up very early in school season. You try to get them dressed, try to get them to eat some breakfast. You take them to school, then you go to work. And then you come home and then it's a rat race for about two hours of who's cooking, who's running them to the locations that they need, only oftentimes to find yourself about 8 o'clock to 8.30 trying with all your might just to get them to go to bed, right? And we can feel this tension of like, how can we even think of the things that are above when life here is so busy or we have so many responsibilities or we have just so many things that pull our attention. And they aren't even necessarily bad things. But when you think about throughout your day, how many times do you just pause? And yeah, like my favorite example is like you just look up at the stars. Or you look at like an oak tree and you think, wow, this is incredible. This has been here longer. I've been alive. How many times does your mind drift to what is simply in front of you to maybe to what is above you? And this is one of the greatest challenges that throughout your entire life that you will have. And here is why. Because I believe that if the enemy, who we call the devil, can keep you thinking about just what is in front of you and not what is above you or who is above you, then your mind will continually, continually be consumed by just what this life is here on earth. And so if he can't get you to even like, think about who Jesus is, if he can't think, even get you to think about like, like what heaven is, or even if there's a hell, if he could just keep you focused on what is right in front of you, then the devil thinks he has you. And to this, I believe he is so true. Because within our life, within our culture, it is oftentimes not the things of above that we think about, but it is those things right in front of us. This is extremely, extremely, extremely hard. Not only the things that are maybe distractions or maybe the things that are even good things, but let's talk about the distractions. How many of you throughout the day, like I'm like the screen time, man, that is like the worst thing ever because it like lets you know how much you're on your phone. That is the worst thing ever. And it's like, how can you even think of things above when this is where your mind is? It's incredible. There was a woman that we were talking to. She's, she was like, I finally had to delete TikTok. And she just basically made the comment, like, TikTok is the most addictive thing in the world. It's unbelievable, like, how incredible the algorithm is. But here's what she found. It's like, I'm not even thinking about the Lord. And that was, like, a really, really deep. She's like, I'm not even, like, praying. I'm definitely not even really in God's Word. And so these are some of those things, prayer and God's word shift our mind to what is right in front of us, to what is above. And here is where this is so profound, is because culture will tell you that this is all there is. Culture will tell you that we hope and pray that you live life to your fullest, to your fullest, and by the end of your life, hopefully you live to be 80, 90, some are just trying to even have this pursuit of which they never die, to just continually be enraptured by what's here and what's right now. And what culture isn't talking to you about is what is above, what is after. Here is at the heartbeat of the gospel, that there is a God who created you, that there's a God who loves you. And that God right now, based on our first verses, is with his son, Jesus Christ, in heaven And he is awaiting 
our return to Him. And when our mindset begins to think about who Christ is and what He has done for us, it is a huge shift is what this is saying. It is no longer a mind that is consumed by what is simply here in front of us, but a mind that is consumed by who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And even though life may be hard, even though life may be difficult, even though life may be challenging, that there is a future hope that we are waiting for. This is, my friends, one of the greatest challenges that we must face. And here is one of the other things. How do you think of things above? Some of you, you need to take off the old self. The old desires, the old wants, the old, the things that took you down the paths that you once lived, you need to put those things off because they are continually consuming your mind and taking you away from Christ. The last thing I'll say here is the challenge to find peace. We see in 3.15, it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And when we focus on things of this world, our peace is stolen from us. We forget the eternal foundation, our strong tower, that is Christ. Now, the second shift, we must shift our focus towards community. If individualism says self-absorption is all there is or your best self is all there is, then what we see is a lack of empathy and we see a lack of care and support for one another. And so there's this shift that we see here in verses 12 through 14. It says, clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness. All of these things cannot be done to self. They must be done to one another. And this is the call that they have for us, to shift your focus just on your own needs and shift your focus to other needs. This past Saturday, yesterday, I had the opportunity to go to Jackson, Kentucky. Is anybody in here from Jackson, Kentucky? Yes. Man, that was in the boondocks. Like I thought Carter County was in the boondocks. That was in the boondocks. And we went to this little country church. It was incredible. It was absolutely incredible. And this little country church is serving just the hollers that is around it, like 10, 15 minutes. But what's more incredible is that this church, within this church, there is a wife and husband, Neil and Nellie. This is incredible. They actually came from Arizona, and they found some land in Jackson, Kentucky, and they bought the land, and they began to also, that was just the under, it wasn't the land that necessarily brought them, but when you hear their story, they said God literally called them, they believe, to eastern Kentucky. And here's his profession. He is not just a dentist, but he is someone that is able to do root canals, which is incredible. And so they come here to Eastern Kentucky, and we see the incredible need, just health needs and, and physical needs, definitely, definitely dental needs in Eastern Kentucky. And so here is what they do. Yesterday, we got to experience them on a Saturday. They take their time, they take their energy, and they have taken their resources, and they put on a free clinic for kids to get dental care. So you can imagine here in Arizona, if you want to take the flip side, the individual will tell you, go get this job, make as much money as you can, make as many profits as you can, maybe give back in some particular ways, and then just continue to provide for yourself and for your family. But what they seen is a movement of God in their midst. They seen God calling them to Jackson, Kentucky, 
to one of the most impoverished areas in the entire state, and here they are sacrificing in order to provide a facility for others to get care at a cost they can't afford, out of the kindness and love of their hearts. He began to share even more what sacrifices have they had to make. He drives to Georgetown, Kentucky. Georgetown, Kentucky from Jackson, Kentucky, almost every single day at another job to provide enough income that then allows them to support this entire other ministry. And obviously, how were they spending their Saturday? They weren't at the lake. They weren't at barbecues. I mean, they were definitely taking care of the farm, but they were making direct choices that they were going to spend their Saturday impacting this local community. And here's why I share that story is that how can we, within our own lives, within our own hearts, be so selfless? To see our income, to see our work, not as a means to provide resources for only our families, but also resources for others. What does it look like for you to take your gifting? What does it look like for you to take your profession and to not use it for your own promotion or once again for your own provision, but for the provision of others? What does it simply look like for us to be a community that uses our giftingness, that uses what God has blessed us with to then be a blessing to others? And here's what you will find is that that will be a fight within you. Because everything our culture tells you is that the individual comes first, not the community. And I'm not even talking about the church community. I'm talking about the community in which we live. This is extremely challenging, but this is one of the greatest calls that we see here to fight individualism. And here's what we see if we are collectively doing this. Man, talk about a unified front. I have this vision and this dream. What would it look like for each of us to use our giftings for the Lord? What would it look like for each of us to use our giftings to transform this community? I'm going to pick up Jessica and Graham. This is incredible. They're in the seats. This is why it's so beautiful about heating here. I'm going to pick on you. See, I tell you, I don't tell you ahead of time, right? Jessica and Graham both went to KCU. And Graham, he holds like all of these football records. And Jessica, she was just a destroyer on the court of basketball. Is this legit? And so they go through foundation basics and they just begin to sense this calling that God may be leading them into. And they just begin to share with Donette. She said, I have this call. What would it look like for me to serve the KCU football team? And then it's like, what would it look like for me to serve the KCU basketball team? And so maybe right now, I use them as an example because the Lord may be planting within your heart somebody or a group of people that you can minister to. And here is what I want to encourage you with, is that the individual will tell you, oh, that's too hard. No, that'll take too much of your time. No, that'll take too much of your industry or energy. But you see, the Lord is over here, and he is opening up the doors. He is opening up your eyes to see the needs that are around you. And so the challenge is to step into obedience to that. And so I encourage each and every single one of you to do the thing to do the same. And we see that together, that our purpose is to live for him and fulfill his plans for our life. This is our common good, our common value, to reducing the focus off of our personal gain and onto the lives of others. The last one, which is probably the most important and probably should have came first, which is shift your focus towards your new identity. 
See, when we look at our culture, the identity, as we said before, is who you choose to be. That is what the culture is screaming at you. This is what the culture is telling you. And even as Christians, the temptation for us is, is that when we profess ourselves to be a Christian is to carry old adjectives into that new relationship. Okay, so this is what is so incredible. Is that, is that we see this like this push that say, yes, you right now you may be in recovery, but if you see yourself as a recovering Christian, then you've added an adjective to what Christ is doing in your life. If you see yourself as a Christian first, who is walking with Christ in recovery, you are not defined first by that adjective. Does that make sense? The adjectives that you put before yourself, you allow to define yourself before you define yourself with Christ. One of the craziest ones that's happening right now is you'll see this tension point between gay Christian. Gay Christian. And you'll see this conversation where somebody's saying that I have this same-sex attraction, but I'm not going to allow Christ to rule this part of my life or over to allow the Spirit to change this part of my life. So I'm going to continue to use it as the adjective of which I define my faith. Or if you continue to look at this one, when you think of just our family, gosh, with new kids, it's like anxiety and just this overwhelmingness. And so you can put yourself as like, I'm an anxious Christian. Or I am a depressed Christian. And you put this adjective before your real identity. As if the Holy Spirit cannot transform your mind, cannot transform your desires, cannot transform your heart. And so here's what's incredible is that we see through this text is that you have a new identity. You have a new identity and that is in Christ. You are first a Christian. If you have professed in who Jesus is, if you have received his salvation, you are first and foremost a Christian. And you will be a Christian who will have a various degree of struggles, but don't allow the struggles to define you first. That is our trick right now. And so as we step into this new identity, here's where we see some beautiful, beautiful, beautiful truths that the culture proclaims, but yet is shallow. Here is what we see within this beautiful, beautiful truth is that we are redeemed and we are beloved. That in our new identity with Christ, we are redeemed and we are beloved. Through Christ's redemptive work, we are set free from sin and reconciled to God. Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you step into this relationship with Jesus, if you step into following him with Jesus, here's what you find. Our identity is no longer defined by our past mistakes and our past failures. Our identity is no longer defined by our appearance. Our identity is no longer defined by our achievements or our social status. Our identity in Christ is a reminder that no person, not even one person ever anywhere is worthless, is disposable, or is even less beloved. 
When we look at Genesis chapter 1, we see this incredible, incredible truth. And I speak this in life to you today if you are struggling with this sense of identity. If the culture war has just continued to weigh down on who you are and how you see yourself. Genesis chapter 1, it proclaims this incredible, incredible truth. So God created mankind in his own image. In his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. This brings us first and foremost inherent worth, inherent value, because we reflect the Creator. Psalms 139 says, You alone created my inner being. You knitted me together inside my mother. I will give thanks to you because I have been so amazingly and miraculously made. Your works are miraculous and my soul is fully aware of this. Here is my encouragement to you today is that when you find your new identity in Christ, and that is the definer of your life, you will begin to see that you are fully loved. You will begin to see that you are fully known. You will begin to see that you are beautifully and wonderfully made. You'll begin to see that you are valued and that this is exactly how you were meant to be seen. And it is a struggle right now within the culture that we live to see yourself that way. And so we combat it with everything that within us. In Christ, you are made new. In Christ, you are made new. We see the old self has been put aside. And we are stepping and walking in newness of life. In Christ, we are forgiven, accepted, and deeply loved. We are children of God and our worth is found in his sacrificial love for us. And when we anchor our sense of self in our relationship with Jesus, we find meaning, we find fulfillment and eternal significance that the hope that we have proclaimed in the beginning will be there at the end. Let us embrace this new identity in Christ, letting go of the world's shallow definition and live as vessels of love and grace. In closing, today, as we just would all maybe just bow our heads and just respond for a moment in our hearts of what we have heard and what we have seen today through God's word in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3, listen, it has the potential to shift our focus off the individual towards a more communal mindset by reminding us first and foremost of our higher calling that this is not our home. That this is not our home. That this is not everything. This is not even the most important. The life that is to come, the life that is in Christ is what He calls us to live for. It encourages us to prioritize the well-being of the community, fostering unity and demonstrating Christ's love in our relationships. And here's what I hope and pray that today, by embracing this mindset, we can transcend individualism and we can cultivate a culture of mutual care, support, and encouragement within the body of Christ. And so today I challenge you, Maybe you came in today and you've already thought about what your whole week looks like. You've thought about what your whole day looks like. You've thought about all the things that you need to get done. You've thought about all the things 
that are just going to take your mind and heart for the next week. And here's the first part. I just want to challenge you. Would you just pause for a moment? Would you just think about what's above for just a second? Think about a God, a creator that loves you. And today, maybe this is the first time you're coming to the realization of who he is and how he, in our brokenness, that in our pain, in our suffering, that he sent his son to die for both you and me for the forgiveness of our sins. And by, by receiving him, we are new in Christ, that we are a new creation, not only with purpose today, but hope for a future. And you can believe in him today. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that he came and he died for you, and you will be saved today. But just pause and think about who he is. And the second one I want to challenge you is think about those in this community. Think about the giftings God has given you. How can you use those, not for your own personal gain and personal benefit, but for the blessing of others, for his kingdom? And then third, today you need to be reminded that the adjectives that you put before yourself no longer exist that you are first made brand new in Christ and that he will continually renew you and challenge you and encourage you and lead you into repentance and redemption in his name. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you today. and We thank you, God, for bringing us into this place. Lord, as we continue to go through this community series, I pray that we would just be radically, radically different in this world that we will begin to see the community in which we live as the mission in which you call us. Lord, may we see our future hope clearly every single day. May we see you in all that we are doing and all that you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.